0: Welcome to A Voice for the Voiceless, a podcast about endangered species. I'm your host, Jenny Sisler, coming to you from Sunderland, Massachusetts on August 8th, 2022. I hope you are all doing well and that this will be a good week for all of you. Um, Hopefully it'll be a good week for us here in Sunderland. Uh, We are in day seven of a heat wave and it's supposed to break by the middle of the week. Uh, thank goodness, um, but it has been rather interesting. Um, we've had temperatures steadily in the mid-90s with heat indices over a hundred since last week and um, it's just been brutally hot. Uh, that being said, I still prefer heat to brutal, brutally cold. I'd rather deal with the 101 degree temperatures than minus 20, which I have a sinking feeling we are going to have a really rough winter coming up because I've noticed one thing over the years, uh, just living in Massachusetts, that the harsher the summer seems to be the worse the, w- the winter is. So I hope I'm wrong. But anyway, I hope it's cooler wherever you are in the world. So tonight's topic is one that I wouldn't have even thought to uh, include in a podcast about endangered species except for the fact that when i was reading this amazing book that i truly recommend everyone to read it's called regeneration ending the climate crisis in one generation and it's by paul hawken h-a-w-k-e-n um it's a fantastic i don't know how you would describe it but it's like a It's a compendium of different uh, ways the world can help uh, fight climate change. Um, I don't really know how to describe it, you have to see it to to appreciate why I love this book so much. First of all, it's a very visually stunning book, but it's an all-inclusive look at how climate change needs to be approached. And he's not a climate alarmist, uh, but neither is he a climate denier. So this book is perfect for anyone, no matter where they are in their environmental uh, or conservation journey. Whether you're just starting out and you're a climate skeptic, or you've bought completely in for years, or you're someone like me, who's kind of in the middle, trending toward climate optimism, which is an entirely different uh, movement altogether. Um, I was reading this book last night, and I was reading a passage about about seagrasses. And as I was reading it, I found out that of the 72 known species of seagrasses, 14 of them are on the IUCN Red List as either threatened or near extinction. And at first I was thinking, well, how can grass go extinct. I mean, it's grass. Grass is everywhere, right? And then I thought, isn't seaweed everywhere when I go to the beach? I'm the kind of person that likes to swim in the ocean. I even did it last year in Hilton Head when I knew there were stingrays out there. Uh, That was probably kind of stupid, but later sharks showed up and were eating the stingrays. But, you know, I mean, I've never let seaweed wrapping around my ankles deter me from swimming in the ocean. Well, believe it or not, and this was news to me until last night. Seaweed and seagrass are two completely different entities. And seaweed is not in any danger at the moment. If we keep on like we have been doing as a species, it could be. But right now, the endangered um, the endangered greenery in the ocean are the seagrasses. Now, I just... I was fascinated by this, and I decided to make it the topic of tonight's podcast, Um, but seed grasses are actually very similar to flowering grasses you see here um, on land. Um, They have roots and stems, leaves. They do produce flowers. Uh, They have seeds. They reproduce by seeds and they evolved about a hundred million years ago. Um, and basically, if you compare uh, algae and seaweed to seagrasses, seagrasses are very complex compared to algae. Um, they the Seagrasses uh, belong to a group of plants that include grass, lilies, and palms. And just like any plant on land, they convert CO2 into energy through photosynthesis. So most seagrasses are shallow water live in shallow waters um, on the coasts but there have been patches of seagrass that have been found 190 feet below the surface of the ocean Uh, but that's rare because they need uh, sunlight for photosynthesis Um, and their roots can absorb nutrients and they're anchored to the seafloor by their roots Um, whereas algae they have what are called the hold fasts which on the surface they look like root systems but they're not root systems because they don't attach to the ocean floor let's say there's a rock on the ocean on the ocean floor or some kind of big shell from some creature that died they'll cling to that but they won't actually root into the ocean floor so they have no roots and they don't flower so uh, seagrasses are very complex and They tend to live in clusters of one specific species, maybe two or three at the most. But there are some places, this book taught me that there are some places in the Western Indian and Pacific Oceans that have quite a diverse uh, area of seagrasses living together, where you can have 13 or 14 different species of seagrass. Um, So their biodiversity is what makes them very unique. and Antarctica is the only continent without seagrass so that's kind of an overview of what a seagrass is Um, I found this image interesting they are known as the lungs of the sea because one meter of seagrass can create 10 liters of oxygen a day Um, so they're very beneficial and they're very important to the ecosystem so they're the unsung heroes of the environment but they're also the unseen victims because how many of us ever encounter seagrass? it's not likely and yet the seagrass ecosystems are among the most endangered in the world simply I think because people don't know anything about them Um, but you know the roots stabilize the sediment which reduces coastal erosion which if any of you have ever been to a beach on a barrier island, you know that those roots in that in that uh, sand, whether it's on the coast as a seat as an ocean dune, or in the water as a seagrass, or pretty much what hold the islands together, um, that is true for Hilton Head. You know, um, it's a very small island anyway. It's a barrier island. And it's technically off the coast of South Carolina, but it's closer to Georgia. You're like 30 minutes from Savannah when you're on Hilton Head Island. But if it weren't for the the sand dunes, the island wouldn't even exist. So as much as land-based grasses hold islands together, seagrasses also prevent coastal erosion and help barrier islands exist. Um, they also absorb nutrients from runoff. So they help protect the ocean from excessive uh, nitrogen and fertilizers and pesticides. But also in the opposite, if there's a nutrient-starved region of the ocean, they act as uh, nutrient pumps and they release nutrients into the water. So they're very much a stabilizing force one way or the other. Um, And they also provide shelter for many creatures. microalgae bacteria crabs shrimp small fish um and invertebrates like sponges or sea anemones sea anemones that's one word i can never pronounce it's probably not a word i should try to say on a podcast and sea anemones it's also apparently a word i can't spell looking at my notes uh grow in the blades of grass and the seagrasses are also feeding grounds now that can be literal uh, because some organisms like manatees sea turtles uh, they eat the leaves directly Um, and then the organisms that grow on the blades of grass the bacteria, the microalgae that sort of thing can also be sources of food for other animals and also dead seagrass can be a source of food, although that's less likely than the other two, but dead seagrass can uh, be a source of food. Uh, So they're an extremely important part of the ecosystem. And this is a depressing statistic that I found on the Smithsonian uh, website. For every seagrass species, there is on average more than one threatened marine species associated with that seagrass so as i've said before in other podcasts, clearly it's not just one species of anything that suffers when it's threatened with extinction it's like sisyphus rolling the uh rolling the boulder up the cliff well when he gets to the top it's going to roll down and, and get him right so if seagrasses start dying out we lose so many other species that we might not even know exist because we could be losing microscopic species. Uh, We could be losing species of plankton, which of course that's going to be a chain reaction because they're one of the primary food sources in the ocean. Um, So it begs the question, what causes seagrass to be threatened? Well, mostly it's pollution, runoff, Um, But also, it's fishing, uh, trawling and dredging for fish, Uh, you know, boat anchors from recreational boats. Uh, They tear up the bottom of the sea and uh, uproot seagrasses. And likewise, propellers do a great deal of damage when they um, go through, you know, they chop it off kind of like running the seagrass through a wood chipper. So, and also coastal development. Um, in even invasive species of seaweed, which, you know, are grown for food sources for us, but they can destroy, just like any other invasive species, they can destroy seagrass. Um, so how... Can seagrasses be protected? Well, most management of seagrasses focus on maintaining the biodiversity. Um, and the sad thing is, there's no real international regulation uh, for seagrass forests, although there probably should be because of the vast scope of how big these um, the, how big these seagrass forests can actually be. I mean, they can be along the coast of more than one country, so you would think there would be international efforts to save them, but sadly it all comes down to local efforts. Um, one, Some things that can be done are limiting da- uh, damaging practices like excessive dredging and trawling for fishing, um, and preventing as much runoff pollution as possible from fertilizers, pesticides, you know, the usual things that destroy water ecosystems. Um, and the book Regeneration talked about um, some seagrass meadows off the coast of Virginia, which I'm from Virginia, grew up in Virginia. Um, so I thought this was really neat because it's something that my home state has been doing to uh help combat seagrass extinction. Um, the, there were certain seagrass meadows off the coast of Virginia that were wiped out by um, hurricanes in the 1930s and also ocean-borne disease and they never recovered. And over the past two decades, um, the 74 million eelgrass seeds have been broadcast into 536 restoration plots off the coast of Virginia. And um, it's called the Vulganow Virginia Coast Reserve. And I read somewhere else, the Virginia Institute of Marine Science, which is based in Virginia Beach, they were were the key uh, research group in charge of this. But they seeded 536 restoration plots. And now, 20 years later, there, um, there's a seagrass patch that is 9,000 acres and it's become the largest eelgrass habitat between Long Island and North Carolina. So you see, the same way we can practice appropriate agricultural practices on land to protect crops, we can do the same thing with seagrasses. We can practice responsible quote-unquote agriculture and we can um uh, limit our use of chemical pesticides and fertilizers to prevent runoff and more than that when we are in when we are involved in boating you know don't get too close to the shallows up on the coast Um uh, you know avoid shallow areas and don't drop anchor in a shallow area where you could be pulling up um, pulling up seagrass by the roots. Um, but I think the one thing that I hope that I'll eventually read about is that there will be more international efforts, uh, to protect seacoasts because the ocean to me, and it's not exactly this way legally and practically, but to me, the oceans always belong to everyone because every country that isn't landlocked, touches the ocean. So why shouldn't it be everyone's responsibility to protect it? I mean, I know you get into territorial waters and international waters and all that, but given how in most countries in the world you're at least not that far from an ocean if you don't border an ocean to begin with, you would think, so you would think that uh, hopefully as environmental protection becomes more of a global concern that countries will band together to protect seagrasses because the one thing that I've read about them that makes them so important is their carbon sinks. They take in and deposit more carbon in the ocean floor than terrestrial forests and terrestrial grasslands do. Um, let me see if i can find this stat in the book uh let's see i should have written this down okay here it is okay on average every acre of seagrass buries a half a ton of carbon per year which adds up to 80 million tons per year of carbon captured by all the seagrass on the planet so oh and i found this interesting i should have mentioned this The world's oldest living organism, period, among all the organisms on the planet is a 200,000-year-old seagrass patch called Poseidona oceanica, which is off the coast of, uh, which is in the Mediterranean ocean. Um, And it still near 200,000 years later is acting as an effective carbon sink. So it is strange to think of grass as being endangered. It's even more strange to think of grass as being in the ocean, but they are out there, and hopefully we can raise awareness. Hopefully by me learning this and telling this to you, and hopefully you share it with other people who are interested, we can make a difference on an international scale and protect the most unique and biodiverse organisms on the planet so that just about wraps up tonight's podcast and i thank you very much for listening as always i couldn't believe last week when i stopped recording that i didn't thank you all for listening um and i didn't close out with my usual uh don't forget you can be a voice for the voiceless too